Welcome everybody to Learn With All. Today we're joined with Michael Ray, science writer and communicator at the Sense Research Foundation. He's was also the author of End Aging with Audrey de Grey. There are a few people that have been on the show who have been in this fight against aging as long as Michael. And I just want to join everyone in uh, welcoming Michael for A, taking the time to be here today, and for being on the show. Super. Thanks very much for having me, Lola. Yeah. And we were just talking about, uh, we just, I always talk to people before we're on the, you know, on the record. And um, you mentioned to me, Michael, that uh, you're like, you've been doing calorie restriction for some time, like this nutritional side, basically the, one of the few things that people feel like they have some ownership over in terms of affecting their longevity, their aging, their health span. And um, the, I'd love to start there because there is so much talked about just on that element of like nutrition, what we can do to eat healthier. But I don't know what scientifically is actually valid. You know, like there's always like there's the fad stuff out there. But anyone who's read their, your stuff, and I'll, I'll put a couple of links to your, to your writing. Like you're very good at taking these really complex themes and concepts and, and and science and and just making it more relatable. And so I'm wondering what. So a a is like what is the science behind uh, calorie restriction and all these different ways of, of doing nutrition? And then uh, b what are your thoughts on like separating like the wheat from the chaff for people listening in who just who want to just take care of themselves but don't know where to go to hear the right things right 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 so so there's a lot there so let me yeah. start by saying like so i'm practicing calorie restriction and you know a number of people are and i think there's good science behind it but uh in terms of like i'm here talking with you because i'm with sense research foundation i should really make clear that like calorie restriction has absolutely donut to do with what is going on at sense research foundation like sense research foundation we're developing actual medicines that will directly remove damaged biomolecules and cells from your body. Whereas what is going on with calorie restriction is you are changing your metabolism in a way that you slow aging. Well, at least if a rat, uh, if you're a rat, uh, it slows aging and we're hoping it does so in humans. So they're, they're very different approaches and what I'm doing is very experimental and very crude. Uh, whereas we're developing a whole new category of therapies that largely don't exist at Sense Research Foundation. So just to be clear that those are like two very separate things, even though they got both got to do with aging. Um, I should also say that like before people even start thinking about calorie restriction, like there's a lot of very basic sort of... A quick note, Uncle Sam wants you to help make this show successful. Subscribe and become a member today. The things that are in the standard guidelines from the USDA or whatever that... Uh, despite people ridiculing them a lot, are actually really important. Like, eat fruits and vegetables, eat protein, uh, you know, minimize your intake of saturated fat and trans fat, um, minimize your intake of alcohol, these kinds of things. Uh, all those things, before you even start thinking about, well, you know, what's my macronutrient ratio going to be, and how many hours a day am I going to eat, and how many, you know, so forth. Uh, and, and maintaining a, a basically lean body type, all those things are vastly higher priority things because we know they work, right? Whereas calorie restriction is super experimental and kind of risky and you really shouldn't consider it without going through a lot of experimentation. Um, so yeah, so up until about 2009, uh, the only thing you could do to a mammal short of genetic manipulations, like actually like giving gene therapy to an animal to slow down the aging process in mammals was calorie restriction. And by that, we mean giving an animal fewer calories than it thinks, quote unquote, it needs uh, 
to sort of maintain an otherwise lean and healthy body type and forcing it into a sort of starvation mode. And this changes its metabolism in many, many ways. And people will say, well, and therefore it does this, and this is the key to how it slows aging. And we really don't know that, right? It is still not clear out of all the many, many things that calorie restriction does to a mammal, why it slows down aging. We just know that at least in experimental animals, it does. So it's important that you engineer that very carefully because malnutrition is not calorie restriction. You have to make sure you are still getting all your essential nutrients, but uh, cutting down the calories below a level that would otherwise be you know, a healthy level of energy intake. So uh, it, very experimental, very risky. We absolutely do not know that it will work in humans the way it does in rodents. But in rodents, it works remarkably well. So uh, they live longer than mice or rats are supposed to be able to live. Uh, and those are additional healthy months or years of life. So, you know, whether you look at um, their ability to see, uh, their resistance to cancer or uh, uh, fibrosis in their hearts or uh, visual acuity or their memory performance or almost anything you want to look at that degenerates with age, that gets preserved and extended in the mice. Uh, a really interesting example of that is actually strength. So you would think, well, the mice get really skinny and therefore they can't possibly maintain their strength. And that's true, at least initially, they lose strength relative to the animals that are fed normally. But as an animal, including a human ages, not only the quantity of their muscle reduces, but the quality of that muscle reduces. So even with the same amount of muscle, it's able to produce less strength. Uh, whereas the cow-restricted mouse uh, is still able to produce the same amount of strength it did when it was a much younger mouse, even though it has less muscle mass than the young mouse did, and it hasn't suffered as much of the age-related decline in muscle mass. So it winds up being that toward the end of its life, the cow-restricted mouse is actually stronger than the animal that's been fed the usual way. Um, so it's just, it's a remarkably powerful way to retard aging in mice. Uh, the question is whether it will work in humans. And there were two studies in non-human primates that were done, one by the National Institutes of Aging and one by the University of Wisconsin that came to very different results. And uh, I did this whole massive blog post trying to piece apart all the different ways that the two studies were different and the ways that their individual results differed and try to figure out you know, what this might mean in terms of human translatability. And at the end of the day, I don't think we still really know the answer to that question. And we're probably not going to get another bite of the apple. So that makes it very, very difficult to decide, you know, what that implies for human aging. Um, I've decided to keep doing calorie restriction, at least for the moment. I may not decide to do so indefinitely, but, you know, the evidence is very complex. If you had asked me, you know, any time between when I started CR in 1998 and when the first of the non-human primate results came out in 2009, throughout that entire, like, decade plus, uh, it looked, you know, every week as if there was a new study coming out that was becoming stronger and stronger evidence that calorie restriction was going to work and was going to work in humans. Uh, and it's still, you know, in 2009, the first non-human primate came, result came out. It was positive. And you're like, well, fantastic. This is great. Uh, and then the second study came out and didn't seem to work. And so, uh, 
you know, it's suddenly it's in a, a real state of uncertainty in a way that, you know, it seemed to be more and more certain that it was going to work in humans up until then. So that's like a really broad stroke on mm -hmm. calorie restriction. Um, there's a bunch of other dietary manipulations that people say, and even people who should know better will say slow aging in mammals. And they really don't want to factor in the question of what about calories. So for instance, people will say that uh, fasting will uh, slow down aging. And yes, fasting will slow down aging if as a result of fasting, you reduce your net calorie intake. But it does so exactly proportional to the reduction in calorie mm. intake. So if you feed an animal the same total number of calories over the course of different periods during the day, or in you know sort of feeding them every other day rather than every day, or by any manipulation, if the animal gets the opportunity to eat the same number of calories as it did without a restriction on its energy intake, it will age and die just like it did if it was fed the normal way. It's only when there's a net reduction in calories that that actually has an effect on the aging process. Um, so that applies both to uh, time-restricted feeding. So people who say, say I'm only going to eat between like 8 a.m. and say 4 p.m., right? Mm -hmm. uh, or people who undergo more extended fasts where they say, you know, I'm not going to eat for three days a week or I'm not going to eat for one week every quarter or whatever. Uh, any of those manipulations, unless they would result in a net reduction in calories, it, there's just no evidence that that actually slows aging in mammals. Um, the other two dietary manipulations that are sometimes said to slow aging in mammals, uh, so one of them is restriction of methionine, which is an amino acid. Uh, and that actually does seem to work, although there's a couple of question marks around it. But the thing is, I think people have gotten the impression that just sort of mildly reducing the level of methionine that you take in will slow down aging. So for instance, if you replace animal proteins, which tend to have a lot of methionine in them with uh, vegetable-based proteins like soy protein, for instance, that's enough methionine restriction to do the methionine restriction they do in the rodents, and it's not. In fact, if you change the protein source in a rodent between uh, an animal source like casein and a vegetable source like soy, there is no effect on aging unless you also change calories, right? So when they talk about methionine restriction in the rodents, they're talking about a really, really radical restriction in methionine that you can only do with synthetic diets. So if you're eating even a diet that is 100% potatoes, you're getting too much methionine from methionine restriction. Um, and then there's just plain simple protein restriction. And really, again, protein restriction only has an effect on aging if it, as a result, reduces calories, which he often does. So yeah, that was a long rant. Uh, if you want to pick any of that apart, I am happy yeah. to answer any questions or clarify. No, that's, I think this is a, a, like for people wondering, like, what's it like to read when your articles are very, very like precise and covering all the bases at the same time. I, I didn't think of a rant at all. I was just like, like an audio version <laughs> of what I've been reading, which is kind of nice. Like I like when things are consistent, you know, like you, I don't know, but, uh, you know, I'm just like born that way. Uh, so for calorie right. restriction, one thing I'm always, uh, curious about is like, is there, uh, is there a counter argument for it working in the sense that like, what if, what if like we're tracking like the wrong thing and it's not calorie restriction, maybe it's like, you know, insert X, you know, don't understand the entire equation appropriately. Is there anything that supports you thinking 
that there might be like a different like thesis or argument going on for what effects calorie restriction seems to do in rats that's not translating to humans very well so far. Yeah, so I mean, all kinds of, oh, uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding the question. So is the question, is is the question, is it maybe not calories, but something else about the diet that uh, we might actually be properly restricting? Is that the question? Or is the question, is there something else about rats versus human that's the reason why it might not translate into humans? Uh, or is it something else? It- but actually, I was I was being unprecise. It was it was kind of both because I I was looking at um like one step higher of is are we like completely wrong on it? Is there any like thing to say that it's not just the calories? It's not just like the translation from animal like from uh, rats to humans, but like the whole like line of it. What if we don't understand what's going on? Um, is there any like logic or evidence yeah. to support that like we have like we're in the right direction? I guess. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me, let me take both my first version of the question and your final version of the question. So in terms of the first version of the question, so we covered a little bit with that as far as like protein and time restriction. So people have been saying for decades, like, you know, maybe it's not really the calories, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. And of course, people have tried experiments to test those questions, right? So they've tried protein restriction. It's not protein restriction. Uh, They've tried timing it's not timing uh they've tried fat it's not fat uh they've tried the quality of the carbohydrates so is it sugar versus starch it's not that in fact there's there's one interesting study where and this is like a real boogaboo for some people where they tried uh the same the same calories both ad libitum and calorie restricted uh the same quantity of carbohydrate but they tried either starch or glucose or fructose and fructose has become such a boogeyman that you would think well the the fructose animals they're doomed and instead the fructose animals live longer than any of them at the same number of calories now the effect of the fructose was like teensy tiny itty bitty versus the effect of calories but like if you had to say like which source of calories was better it looked like like the difference was statistically non-significant but if you looked at the sheer numbers the animals fed the fructose diet actually did better than the other ones. So, but anyway, so it, it was a tiny, tiny effect. And once you sort of look at the difference between, you know, an ad libitum fed animal and a cow restricted animal, it's like in the cow restricted animal, there's this much extra versus there's this much difference between ad libitum and cow restricted. Um, people have tried restricting different vitamins or minerals as well. And like so far, like no one has done every single vitamin every single mineral you know every combination of three different minerals or whatever uh and so far it certainly looks as if it's just the darn calories like no matter which combination you do sometimes you see very minor effects sometimes you don't but it's at the margins versus overwhelmingly being about calories Hmm. um so the other thing in terms of like the human translation question so my mentor abby de gray wrote a paper whose name is escaping me right now, but uh, the basic hypothesis was that um, humans, the, the effect of cow restriction that you see in rodents can't possibly happen in humans. And it's an evolutionary argument for he says, well, look, uh, rodents, if they are going to survive during a famine period, 
a, a period of a month or two of famine or a year of famine is a huge portion of its lifespan. And so in order to get through that period of life and survive, it has to undergo a profound metabolic change. Whereas a human, it has years and years and years of lifespan. Like, you know, we, we, we live, you know, say 70 or 80 years if we are protected from outside forces, whereas a mouse can live for three years. And so the, the magnitude of its lifetime that a human is going to have to survive a famine is just so small. Like one season is a tiny fraction of its life. And therefore, it doesn't make sense to undergo this profound mm. metabolic change to live longer and breed in the future if you're going to have lots of opportunity anyway. Um, I was not convinced by that argument, and I wrote a counterpaper arguing why not. Um, in part, it's based on the evolutionary hypothesis that it's based on. And my reasoning is really the cow restriction is not, quote unquote, trying to make you age more slowly. It causes you to age more slowly by sheer coincidence. And I wrote then that there were enough similarities in terms of how humans and non-human primates and mice change metabolically in terms of how the hormones change, like uh, thyroid hormones, and uh, insulin life growth factor and uh, testosterone and estrogen and uh, you know body temperature changes and all these other metabolic changes that we knew both species underwent that it would translate on that basis and we were clearly undergoing very similar metabolic changes however again the ultimate the, fa the fact that the two non-human primate studies came to different answers, I think, again, leaves that question open to doubt. But I don't know, you know, having gone through it in detail in that blog post, I still can't point to, like, this is the jugular question. This is the thing that will answer whether it's going to work in humans or not, short of, you know, an actual human lifespan study. Hmm. Is there anyone doing that type of study to, to really prove out, take this from something that's experimental to something more proven so people can then more rely on it? Well, so there were, and I, I really should have mentioned these earlier, there were a series of studies that were done actually in humans uh, to see if cow restriction works in us. So I was actually a volunteer on studies done by uh, Dr. Luigi Vontana, who uh, at that time was at uh, Washington University at St. Louis. He's now back in Italy where he's from. Oh, uh, is he back in Italy? I think he may be yeah, in day. Australia. Oh, okay. Where is he? In, in Australia or no, back in I'm, Italy I'm, again? I'm pulling him up right now. But you, you, uh, while okay. you uh, continue, I'll, I'll cyberstalk him. Lu, okay, cool. Luigi Fontana, so, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's um, in Sydney. Sorry, Luigi, is, but you okay. didn't want to know that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go you stocked him successfully um so he did a study where he just recruited a bunch of people who were already practicing cow restriction and looked at our blood work and looked at our uh heart parameters and our uh, ability to process oxygen our vo2 max uh and our heart rate variability and our different aspects of our physiology and pretty much everything he found was consistent with us being in a cow-restricted state, just like the mice were. So uh, when he took muscle bi biopsies, the activity of a protein called mTOR was reduced, uh, whereas it was not in either exercised people or in people fed the normal way. Um, 
we had fewer senescent cells, which are a class of uh, damaged so-called zombie cells that promote aging uh, in our colons, uh, all kinds of evidence that we were undergoing similar changes to the mice. Um, the, the, the sort of limitation to those studies was that it was not a randomized controlled trial. We were all people who had done it to ourselves. So, you know, just by definition, we're going to be different to people who don't practice calorie restriction in ways that are difficult to disentangle. Uh, and then there was a, a series of studies called Calorie, spelled C-A-L-E-R-I-E, -E, uh, some of which were actually also done by Dr. Fontana, some of which were done at uh, the Pennington Biomedical Research Center, where they took, it was a true randomized study, and they took people who were, most of them slightly overweight, and put them on either calorie restriction or not. So it was a true randomized trial. Uh, the problem was the degree of calorie restriction was very mild, and it didn't really have many people in it who were already lean and restrict their calories even further, which is what real calorie restriction is. So it also provided evidence that were broadly consistent with calorie restriction, retarding aging, but the effects were all much weaker, as you would expect from uh, the degree of calorie restriction being much weaker. Um, so again, all of that is suggestive, but really the only way to answer the question in humans is to actually do the study, which, you know, by definition is going to take 50 to 100 years to do. And I'm more impatient than that. And so are you. So uh, I don't think we're really going to get the answer. And the other thing is, like, I've been practicing calorie restriction, and I'm used to it. I've been doing it for 25 years. Like, it's just the way I run my life. Whereas, you know, people are less and less interested in the answer to the question now, because, you know, as of 2009, there are actually drugs that will retard aging in mice and rats, which did not exist when I was starting calorie restriction. And there's the sense strategy, which again, did not exist when I started calorie restriction and is likely to be even more powerful and is starting to roll out actual therapies now. Um, so the incentive to answer the question is a lot less because mm -hmm. so few people are willing to practice calorie restriction and you know there are alternative strategies like when i started again it was calorie restriction or age and die like your neighbors like that was the choice and that is not the choice anymore there are very realistic chances that we're going to have real therapies to either retard or reverse aging processes in humans within our lifetime you know if we fund the research and get the stuff done so just like how important it is to answer that question is just a lot less important than it was yeah it sounds like uh, another added benefit of doing calorie restriction is you'll probably be eating less, you know, like just the, the nature of it. So if everyone mm -hmm. starts doing calorie restriction and they take that extra money that they're saving, they can donate it to the Sense Research Foundation and then we, we can call <laughs> it uh, uh, eating less for the future or something. I don't know. That'd be like maybe a fun uh, way to uh, draw up sales. But um, I, uh, I, I think that would work better if people threw out all their garbage dietary supplements because unfortunately, typically a calorie restricted diet is more expensive because you're throwing out relatively cheap foods like pasta and bread uh, and exchanging them for relatively expensive foods like vegetables and lean protein. So yeah, I don't think anyone's really saving any money on calorie restriction, even though if you just sort of took your existing diet and like cut out 30% of the calories out of it, yeah, you'd have all this money left over. Yeah. Yeah, what are what are your thoughts? Uh, so I recently had near near Brazili on the show, and I asked him yep. uh, about supplements. I don't know if you watched this episode, but anyways, but, um, he, he talked about Brian Johnson. 
and how like Brian Johnson is like doing like some extreme stuff and your Brazilian said, Hey, I can get the same results and I'm taking like two or three supplements. So maybe taking 200 right. supplements isn't the same. How do you weigh in on that? Like are supplements something that's actually going to make a noticeable difference in people's lives or is it better to, you know, let's say, uh, for argument's sake, like save that money, you know, donate to a research organization like SENS research foundation, uh, and be a part of pushing the needle that way and drugs that will really uh, have a big impact, but which is like a part two of the, the question. The first part is, uh, to be specific, how do you weigh in on the, uh, lots of uh, supplements versus focus smaller supplements like NIR does? And uh, is there really a big impact? So uh, I will first answer the question, is there a big impact? The answer is no, that's pretty clear. <laughs> um, uh, so when I look at the overall majority of supplements that people are taking, for life extension purposes, there is no good evidence really almost any of them work. Um, I would say there are dietary supplements that are really important for some people to take because their diets are actually deficient in those nutrients, right? So um, I show physiological signs of being in zinc deficiency if I don't add a zinc supplement. And even though like I have, you know, I actually enter in all my food into dietary software to manage my nutrition, and I can see that I am ostensibly getting lots of zinc, and yet I show evidence biochemically that I am in zinc deficiency, so I take a zinc supplement. And I'm vegetarian, so I don't get enough uh, choline in my diet, and being without choline is likely to be really bad for you, so I take a choline supplement. But most people are not taking supplements that way. They are like throwing random stuff because you know, look what it did in this cell culture study, or uh, look what it did to this really sickly mouse that has nothing to do with this person. Um, the vast majority of supplements that people are taking, really, there's no good evidence they do much of anything at all. Um, I would say, actually, as of like three weeks ago, there is one dietary supplement for which there is credible evidence it might actually retard aging, and that's taurine at sufficiently high doses. That is the most credible study I've ever seen that a dietary supplement actually slow aging. Um, the closest thing to that after that is uh, calcium alpha glutarate, And even that, it was only very convincing in mice and the effect was really very small. Um, certainly compared to something like rapamycin, which at least in mice and rats, uh, quite significantly slows down aging. You know, the effect of any dietary supplement out there is very minimal. and so getting back to your question of large numbers versus small numbers where there just aren't enough credible supplements to be worth even considering that you would ever wind up with a large number of supplements if you see what i'm saying so that sort of takes that question right off the the plate as it were um yeah and and in terms of like the plausible effect size well again there's there's really nothing that has a plausibly large effect size out there now compared even to something like rapamycin or uh, say an SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, and even those are much smaller effect sizes than you would predict you would have from a comprehensive panel of SENS style damage repair therapies. So, you know, th th there really isn't a comparison to be made here. Like it, people are really wasting a lot of time and brain power on dietary supplements compared to investing in research to develop therapies that are actually going to really do the job in humans. 
And even for the dietary supplements, like you would want to actually have human evidence that they work, but you don't have any of now. So again, the the research is really what has to happen. Yeah. So that, what what do you make? So I keep looking at what blue, uh, not blue Johnson, but uh, Brian Johnson. Uh, what he's blueprint. Yeah, yeah, blueprint. I combine I combine words all the time. I'm like mildly dyslexic. Yeah, but, it's it's uh, it's like Barbenheimer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't I, I don't know. If, have you checked out that movie? Just as like a random. Have you done that? Like uh, Barbie Oppenheimer trilogy i have done neither i i have done neither no i'm just aware of the cultural phenomenon okay i was gonna i was gonna ask your opinion uh to if it was worth doing them back to back because that's like five hours (laughs) uh, do do uh so when i look when i look at brian johnson i can't tell if his blueprint is meaningful at all um or if it's just kind of like a bit of a distraction or at best um, like a case study, kind of like Phineas Gage, you know, like you know, like a railroad spike through his head, and we kind of know, oh, that part of your brain maybe <laughs> it's good for personality. You know, it seems like maybe that's like the best that could be it by limited understanding of things. How do you make? What do you I, make of the of, of it? Is it? Is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd say a few things. I mean, like we can't use him as a Phineas Gage simply because he's doing so many things that mm. if something really great or really awful happened to Brian Johnson, like what would you know, right? Like. Was it the diet very low in protein and very high in all these obscure vegetables? Or was it the really intense exercise regimen? Or was it this skin sculpting he is doing? Or is it the ginger extract? Like, how would you know, right? Um, This is the problem with N of 1 experiments. As a general overview, I would say it's really great that he is doing this stuff and talking about it publicly so that people can be aware of you know people who are not already inside the life extension community like it's got a lot of attention and that's kind of great but most of what he's doing i would say there is very little value to and although it is really good to do testing on oneself like it it always gives me a bit of a face palm when people are taking tons of dietary supplements and not doing any testing to see what it's doing to them um, and to see if it's having any toxic effects even. So it's good that he's doing lots of testing, but he is testing so frequently that it's kind of noise. Uh, And this is especially true for the epigenetic aging test. So for people in your audience who don't know, there are these tests that measure the level of sort of these decorations that surround your genes that control to some extent whether individual genes are turned on and off. And there are these various different systems whereby they can take a blood test and look at patterns in terms of which of these changes to these epigenetic markers in your blood cells uh, have you undergone or not versus other people your age. And how does that on average, predict your life expectancy. Now, people are doing this in scientific studies, and they're very interesting, and they might someday lead to something, but people are now doing this on a direct-to-consumer basis individually. And the problem with that is, first off, a woman named uh, Morgan Levine, a scientist in this area, has shown that if you don't make certain kinds of calculation adjustments in those tests, uh, they can have very, very wide uh, sample-to-sample variations. So if I took a blood test from you right now and I split it in two 
and I measured the epigenetic age in one aliquot of that blood and another aliquot of that blood separately, depending on which test we're looking at, out of the, the big hitters, the tests that are out there, there could be anywhere between a two and a nine year difference in terms of its estimated epigenetic age uh, between one test and another from you. So, you know, obviously if you then test in five years, once and then again, like that's well within the margin of error of what those two tests are gonna give you. Mm -hmm. So it's really just noise, uh, let alone doing that as frequently as Brian Johnson is doing it. So yeah, um, there's a lot that he's doing that I don't think makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's very difficult to disentangle what makes sense and what doesn't out of all what he's doing. Yeah, well, it, sounds, it sounds like at the very least he's a, he's a great cheerleader for uh, getting yeah. people excited for the game that's going on in the research. Um, at, transitioning more to research, we had a, a write-in from a long-time listener. You know, I hope he listens, but or she just asked lots of questions. Uh, Barrelmaster uh, asked, uh, how has funding and activity for startups and the Sense Research Foundation activity been affected by the rise in interest rates? Which I think they raised it a quarter of a percent again today. So uh, how is yeah, yeah, the, just that, that change of, yeah, how does that, how does that change of percentage? affected uh funding for for you guys uh, i have to say it's had a pretty negative effect both on the startup space and in the actual organization itself um if funding has been as high as five million dollars a year we are now down at about 1.5 so that's a substantial wow. decline yeah um and the startup space has also been i mean not just in aging but all across the board has been down um, I, because it is contentious which startups count as real aging startups and which don't, uh, it's hard to get a really good handle on whether the aging space has, you know, fared better or worse than the biomedical startup space as a whole, but the whole biomedical startup space is definitely down. We can say that much for sure. Um, so there's been a sort of a, a weeding process we shall see. Um, on the other hand, like if you compare the biomedical startup space to what it was like five years ago, and certainly 2009 when the foundation was set up, like there was no startup space for uh, actual aging research worth speaking of. And what little was happening there was really just like disease space uh, that was masquerading as aging. So it is much better than it was, but we, you know, we had a real rush during the pandemic age when interest rates were so low and when there was a real surge in interest in the whole area. Uh, funding really went into biomedicine as a whole and aging research really, really stung onto that and a lot of new startups got going. And we are, we are not at the absolute peak, but we are still doing much, much better than we were in the startup space you know, five years ago and certainly back in 2009. So if you were to like average it out for the lifetime of the organization, it's still trending in the in a good direction, but it's not as high as it used at, at like peak yeah. pandemic. Yeah, yeah. That, well, it's good to hear that. Assessment. Yeah, it's good to hear that. Like they're the weathering the storm. I understand that. Like the from what I understand, I, I wouldn't say I understand this, but the the point of the interest rate is to like affect inflation. Is there any other purpose mm -hmm. to it? Like I don't know if you understand finance. Like I always wonder. Like <laughs> I understand. Like people lose jobs or like. Uh, prices and stuff, uh, uh, you know, things change. But to me, it's kind of like that uh, Isaac Asimov quote. 
I don't know if it's a, no, it's Arthur C. Clarke, where it's like anything sufficiently advanced looks kind of like magic. And so when I, I learn <laughs> about these finance things, like I just think like it just, I don't know, it's just like kind of like far out there for me. Do you know like what the purpose of it is? Like in the, in the like. So, yeah. yeah. So I, I am not an economist, but yeah, your mm-hmm. understanding is exactly my understanding that the entire purpose of this is to curb inflation by basically getting people to spend less and getting people to. Uh, not expect as much that the size of the money pool is going to keep expanding and therefore that prices are going to keep going up. And as people start feeling poorer, they will get increasingly price sensitive and judicious in what they spend money on. And that will force uh, people out there to uh, lower their prices in turn and uh, stop making so much investments and thereby, you know, slow down the rate of inflation and they are succeeding. But uh, the expectation is that, you know, sort of as you get closer and closer to the target that the Fed wants, which is, you know, about 2% inflation per year, that it just gets harder and harder and harder to squeeze out that last little bit. And so we are still probably in this for a while. Hmm. So, but yeah, it has all kinds of negative side effects because you would, the ideal fantasy, of course, was that people would, you know, become price sensitive in the goods that they bought, but that people would still continue investing in advanced technologies and scientific research and all the sort of good things that keep life continuing getting better for humans uh, and maybe stop throwing money at foolish things. But of course, uh, interest rates are a very blunt instrument, but it's the only instrument that the Fed has. And unfortunately, there is paralysis in Washington to do anything alternatively. So, Yeah. I, I just watched a video today on one of the people on the Hill who was giving a speech, mm. and then he like stopped speaking mid-speech. And it's like, Mitch McConnell, oh, yeah. Yes, I was like, that guy's the. I think he's one of the leader guys. I was like, oh, that's 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 a kind of. Yeah. I hope he's doing all right. Uh, you know, I can understand why this paralysis if there's like that. You know, stuff like that happening a lot. <laughs> how, how does how does the how does the Sun Research Foundation adapt to continue to do the good work that you're tr- they're trying to do what you're trying to do when you have these types of fluctuations? I mean, it's difficult. Uh, Part of the answer is that we did get a very large surge of funding thanks to work by Aubrey de Grey back in the middle of the pandemic that we are still sort of slowly spending down. So when I said we'd only brought in $1.5 million last year, uh, we spent more than $1.5 million Mm -hmm. by a significant margin by drawing down that significant charge of money. Um, So that's part of the answer. Part of the answer, you know, when times get tight is we just stop doing as much research as we would like to. Um, and there's been some sort of fortunate, unfortunate things like, so for instance, we have a research project that we invested in that I am incredibly excited about. Uh, a guy named Dr. Goodkoff at the Roswell Institute. Um, so let me take a step back. So one of the probable drivers of aging uh, is a phenomenon called retrotransposons. So um, in your genetic code, there are the old remnants of viruses that at some point in our remote past uh, integrated their genome into our genome, and it actually got passed on to the children of the organisms that got those in it. And um, our bodies actually have metabolic pathways that repress those genes from reactivating in our cells. But as we age, as with everything else, uh, that system becomes less effective. And so you start having these retrotransposons reactivate in our cells. And that causes 
inflammation and mutations and all kinds of other bad things. Um, so the question is, what could we do about this? And so uh, Dr. Gutkov came out with a really ingenious strategy whereby we could basically destroy cells that had undergone this activation of retrotransposons, which would prevent some of the age-related inflammation that they trigger and also potentially prevent, prevent cancers because you know cells that had undergone a mutation as a result of having a retrotransposon would also be destroyed. So very exciting work. Um, the problem is he has developed now two different lines of mice designed to test this technology and both of them have not been viable organisms. And so he hasn't figured out a better way to do this yet. And so we are not giving him money to keep that research up because he doesn't know how to spend it yet. And so, you know, we're saving money on that. Now, my preference would be he would have a brilliant idea tomorrow and we would start funding it again. But in the meantime, we are saving money because he doesn't know what to do with the money if we gave it to him. So there's stuff like that as well. Yeah. Uh, are there, um, this kind of goes, there's a number of people who are just like, ask him what is the exciting projects going on right, you know, at, uh, at SRF. And um, so broadly, I know there's a couple of them in particular that you want to get into, but what, um, and we can start broad and then like work away in. What are some of the projects um, that are going on that are not going to be cut that are, that you're really excited about in the development stage that they are in right now? Well, I'm super excited by a number of them. I mean, um, mm -hmm. so uh, we are funding work by Jean Hébert. He is uh, out at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, the same place as near Marzoli. Um, he has, and I will just describe it briefly and get into detail if you want, but he has a really ingenious strategy for replacing neurons in the aging brain. So mm -hmm. uh, with aging and especially in Alzheimer's disease, uh, you lose a number of neurons from different specific areas in the brain. And one of the most important of these is the neocortex. This is the area where most of our conscious thought and our memories are held. Um, and losing neurons in that area obviously is something you really don't want to do. Um, and it's only relatively recently that we have been able to replace neurons in the brain at all you know, on a very small scale. And the problem is that's been being done by surgery. So people are, you know, sort of drilling a hole in the mouse's brain and putting in very small numbers of neurons into one little tiny area of the brain and then, uh, you know, sort of sealing it up and these neuron precursors will uh, expand and develop into neurons and integrate. And that's great for that, like, little microscopic area of the brain. Uh, but of course, that doesn't scale to the entire neocortex, which, I mean, people will know, you know, the, the brain is famously all folded up in on itself. And if you expand mm -hmm. it, I don't even remember how large it is, but the surface area of the brain is quite enormous. And so you can't do surgery across the entire surface of your brain to put, you know, all these different neural precursors all across that entire surface. That would be very likely to kill you rather than improve your life. So he has this strategy whereby he can implant a certain class of cells, have them spread all across the brain, transform themselves into neuronal precursors and integrate. Now, he hasn't proven that that entire process works at even a mouse, but he has shown the initial steps of that all work individually. And so this is the first time that we've had a real strategy 
for actually replacing neurons all across the brain. So that is, in, in, sorry, let me retreat on that, not across the entire brain, but across the entire neocortex. Mm -hmm. So that's an incredibly exciting research project. Um, we have a project that's being done uh, in-house by uh, one of our researchers, uh, Amit, Dr. Amit Sharma uh, and uh, his lab are working on this project that was originally originally designed by Dr. DeGray, completely ingenious approach where, so here's the issue. Um, in the aging brain, especially in Alzheimer's disease and a few other neurodegenerative diseases, uh, there is a protein called tau that uh, undergoes aberrant uh, changes that damage the brain in different ways. Uh, and the real problem with tau is the tau that is inside the neurons. And people have been trying to come up with strategies to deal with tau when it is outside the neurons. And it's not as if abnormally damaged tau outside the neurons is harmless, but it's not really the place we're worried about. The place we're really worried about is the tau inside the neurons. And people have been focusing on the tau outside the neurons because no one has had a good strategy for tackling tau inside the neurons. Well, Dr. Gray identified this paper whereby these people had identified a technology using modified nucleosides to actually import antibodies into neurons. So if we could come up with a way to match that strategy up with an effective antibody that would destroy aberrant tau, then we could actually tackle the interneuronal tau. And so what they're now working on is developing those antibodies. Now, most antibodies are so-called binding antibodies or IgG antibodies, where uh, the antibody just grips onto whatever its target is, and then it has to drag it out. Now, doing that from inside the neuron is likely to be very difficult. And even after that, you have the additional problem that you get it outside the neuron, where does it go, right? So the brain is protected by a layer of sort of uh, tightly wound blood vessels called the brain-blood barrier. Um, and you would want to get this captured tau outside of the brain, but the blood-brain barrier is likely to impede that from happening. And this is probably what's happening with some antibody therapies where you get um, damage to the blood-brain barrier and these uh, bleeding events called area. Um, so in order to avoid that, uh, the strategy here is instead of using binding antibodies that would have to drag the abnormal tau out of the neuron and then drag it outside of the blood-brain barrier, these are a different kind of antibodies called catabodies, uh, which instead of binding to it and pulling it out, they actually bind to it and chop it into small pieces which then the enzymes that are already present inside the neuron can degrade further and eliminate. Uh, and so they are working on that right now. They have been making somewhat slow progress, but the strategy is brilliant. So the idea here is we can now sneak the antibody inside the neuron and break it up into smaller pieces. The cell breaks it up into pieces that it can process itself, and then the neuron is completely free of the abnormal tau and we are liberated from those effects in aging. Extremely exciting stuff. Um, a third thing I'm really excited about is actually also being done by Dr. Sharma's lab. Um, uh, he, <laughs> not a bad idea. So um, 
it's been known for a while that a kind of immune cell called a natural killer cell uh, plays an important role in destroying senescent cells in our bodies. I mentioned senescent cells earlier. So these are cells that are undergone some kind of damage and the body says, ooh, you're looking a little risky, pal. We want to stop you from replicating yourself. And so it activates uh, not a self-destruct program, but a, a self-deactivation program where it stops the cell from replicating anymore, uh, which is good in the short term because it, amongst other things, prevents the cell from developing cancer and prevents it from uh, triggering fibrosis. Uh, but it has the downside that these cells will start producing inflammatory factors and factors that degrade the local tissue. Uh, and over time, that can do you know, a lot of harm to the body as well. So we really want to eliminate the excess senescent cells. And the immune system has actually got these cells called natural killer cells whose job it is to do that. Um, and so we've been looking for a while at different ways by which we might either uh, restore the natural killer cells' youthful ability to more effectively eliminate senescent cells or engineer natural killer cells so they would be more effective at eliminating senescent cells. Uh, Dr. Sharma has been working on both of those strategies, but just in the last few months, he's actually come up with something totally new and kind of unexpected, which is that a completely different kind of cell, which I am not yet at liberty to disclose, is much more effective than natural killer cells at destroying senescent cells and actually have a much easier pathway to turning into something that we could actually use as a therapy. So uh, I am eagerly awaiting the day when I can disclose the facts of that. But yeah, very exciting stuff right there as well. Um, meanwhile, uh, on our MitoSense team, Dr. Bumanatham has been slogging away at several different strategies to deal with the fact that our mitochondria, which is our energy-producing organelles inside of our cells, uh, accumulate mutations with age uh, that unfortunately can't be fixed by a strategy that a lot of people are aware of, which is sort of causing the old damaged mitochondria to be destroyed called mitophagy and then replaced by a process called uh, uh, mitochondrial biogenesis. Um, unfortunately, this class of mutation, the large deletions, can't be dealt with by that because uh, once they are formed, they actually have a kind of resistance to being culled by that mitophagy machinery. And so uh, she's working on three different potential strategies any of which might overcome that problem and by one mechanism or another allow the cell to continue operating with its normal energy generating process either despite the ongoing presence of those mutations or by finding a way a workaround to allow the cell to actually cull those uh, mutation bearing mitochondria so that's a, a bunch of projects we're working on that i'm quite excited about yeah i think the i think the thing when I'm sitting here hearing about these projects that I've read about, but also just hearing your passion for them is I think sometimes people see this longevity thing, this, this field as kind of like a, like superficial, like, Oh, you want to live longer or whatever. Like that, that's not like a cool thing in and of itself, like something meaningful to have more years on the, on the planet, but it's also going to improve people's health span at the same time. It's not like we're going to live yeah. longer, but hate those, that those years, you know, like even if, even if like we were capped on life, 
the things that are going to happen because of these different projects to improve people's quality of life. There are diseases specifically related to uh, mitochondrial dysfunction that I imagine uh, these uh, interventions would be able to help people with. And so I think sometimes yeah. people, what I get comments about this on, on the thing, so I'm just kind of addressing it. But like sometimes people feel like it's like either or, like oh, we put money over here, we can't get money over here for like health health span or what have you. But I think. I don't. I haven't heard or seen something in longevity, or at least as it relates to sense, the Research Foundation that do, that affects longevity. That, but that doesn't also affect health span. With I think it's like I, a, a very important combination. Yeah. So, so that's a really important point. So, I mean, the the short version of that is like super healthy people don't drop dead, right? So, pe people imagine just as you say. People imagine that like life extension technology means like. You take an average 90-year-old, that's how you're going to be when you're 90 years old with life extension technology. And then they're going to be even older when you're 100 years old. And you're going to be even older when you're 150 years old or 200 years old or a thousand, like a thousand years old. Like you would have to be like this miserable, shriveled little, you know, whatever. That just, that biologically cannot work. Like people who are very sickly don't live. That's why we die when we get old, right? So... The whole reason why life extension technology works in animals and will work in humans is because it keeps us biologically younger. So like a young person, a 30 year old, a 40 year old is an extremely low risk of dying in the next year, precisely because he or she is relatively healthy, right? They don't have huge amounts of arterial plaque. They don't have a whole bunch of neurons lost in their brain. They can see well. Uh, you know, their muscles are still working properly. And so the reason why people at age 90 are unhealthy is exactly because they have aged. And the whole point of these technologies is exactly to prevent, slow down or reverse the aging process. And when you prevent, slow down or reverse the aging process, you keep people younger for longer. And because they are young, they are healthy. And because they are healthy, they live because healthy people don't just drop dead. Mm -hmm. So this is the whole thing. Like life extension technology is health extension technology. You can't have one without the other. Yeah. I think that's like the, for anyone who's wondering like, why should I support, you know, SENS research foundation or any other organization that's working on these things? It is that duality. It's that idea that um, there's a lot of illnesses out there, like Alzheimer's for instance, that we don't really know like we don't really have a treatment for it in, in a very effective way and maybe it's something down this line where we find a treatment that then you know wipes out with such a big problem well and in fact i mean it's funny you should say so right so like up until a year and a half ago we had exactly zero therapies for alzheimer's that actually affected the course of the disease right like there were these drugs a small number of them that sort of gave you a temporary boost to your cognitive function but in terms of like, what's the slope of degeneration had no effect at all. You were still mm. sliding downhill. Whereas the first two therapies that have actually gone through and shown that they can slow down the rate at which people decline with Alzheimer's disease are actually sense style damage repair therapies where they actually remove molecular damage from your brain. So this is a protein called beta amyloid that is well known to be associated with Alzheimer's disease and is sort of the main upstream driver of all the other damage that happens in the Alzheimer's disease brain. And so we now have therapies that for the first time in human history actually slow down the degeneration process 
And those are exactly Sense-style damage repair therapies. And so you say, well, if they don't slow it down a little bit, why is that of any value? Well, it's only tackling one kind of damage in the aging brain. So what you want to do is you want to tackle the other kinds of damage that occur in the aging Alzheimer's brain. And once you have tackled all of them, and or once you remove the beta amyloid early on enough and on in the process that all the downstream damage can't happen, you can prevent or reverse Alzheimer's disease. That's the same for all the other diseases of aging, where you know aging happens because of damage to the cells and molecules that carry out the functions of life. Like all people are are machines composed of cells and molecules. And the reason why any kind of machine, whether it's a car or whether it's a person, degrades is because their functional units break down over time. And so if you can remove, repair, or replace the different functional units, that's exactly what they're going to keep an automobile running, and that's exactly what's going to keep a person running, as it were. So that's exactly the approach with SANS, is directly remove and repair the damage and keep the system running, which is to say, keep it healthy and alive. I wonder um, if I know there's like that. There's this idea that uh, when we can take care of use these sense approaches to take care of these things that are, are causing these problems, that in the absence of these um, problematic you know proteins or, or cells or what have you, that, uh, that the body will naturally start regenerating. But in places like the brain, the brain is pretty slow at regeneration. How do you think about coupling? sense tile approach with some type of uh, regenerative uh, therapy or process in there to kind of like help because if i think if someone was suffering from like alzheimer's for 10 years uh it was you know you'd probably depending on the type you know it'd be pretty far along and then you come in here and you stop it you stop that you know the downward trend and then your brain can slowly start regenerating back up i feel like if there was some type of additional therapy that could come in and add that regenerative feature as well that would just like be like the one-two punch to really take care of the whole thing yeah so, so there's, there's two separate things there. So the first thing is, like, the body already, of course, does a lot of things to repair itself all the time, right? Like, if you cut yourself, uh, it heals. And um, a lot of, actually, the things that go wrong in aging are sort of ineffective attempts to repair damage that the body really can't repair. Um, so, like, it's actually kind of baked into the cake of the SENS approach that uh, we, we know that the body already knows a lot of things to do to repair itself, and we are you know, banking on the fact that once we repair the damage that the body can't repair itself, that its existing regenerative abilities will be able to take care of a lot of the other stuff just like it does in a 20-year-old, right? When a 20-year-old breaks his leg or, you know, cuts her arm or even has a concussion or, like, goes out for a hard night of drinking, their recovery is really good precisely because they are young and healthy, Right. Uh, what happens in aging again is that you get so damaged that your repair systems can't function effectively, and they, there are certain kinds of damage that it can't repair. So once you've removed all of that other damage, you are liberating the body to clean up the rest of the damage itself. But then, yeah, exactly as you say, it's also true that we'll be able to use other medicines more effectively. You know, medicines that we use now for non-aging purposes and other aging-related medicines can be combined. Um, a paper that uh, myself and Dr. DeGray and a bunch of other aging scientists wrote back in 2009 is predicated on that. It's predicated on the idea that, you know, there are 
approaches out there that are being explored that are based on sort of boosting the body's natural repairing processes. And then there are the damage repair based approaches where we're saying we want to develop therapies that actually directly remove things that the body can't deal with itself. And that those two kinds of therapies could be perfectly complementary. And in fact, um, if you look at Dr. DeGray's work with the Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation, they are doing combination therapies. And in those combination therapies, they are combining both classic SEN-style damage repair therapies, uh, like senescent cell removal with senolytics, with other therapies that are classic, what we call messing with metabolism approaches, where you are sort of boosting things that the body can already do. So for instance, he's using the drug rapamycin, uh, which increase, well, does a bunch of things, but among the things it does, it increases the body's uh, inbuilt recycling system, which is called autophagy. So he is testing sort of combinations of sort of best of both worlds for both of those, to try and get the best bang for his buck. So yeah, 100%, those, those two approaches are completely complementary. Um, it's just that the, the really hard damage can only really be addressed by the SENS approaches. Mm. And then um, I don't think we have, there's some of my notes to address. Your metabolism comment just now reminded me that you, uh, in our pre-conversation, you mentioned that there's a new senolytic approach with iron metabolism. And if you, it was a part of uh, what you mentioned previously, my, my bad, but right. have we, What what is that about? So uh, we've mentioned already a couple of times the, uh, this problem with senescent cells accumulating in our tissues. Um, mm -hmm. So the main, the best understood way that senescent cells damage us is by secreting these negative proteins I was mentioning earlier. This is called the SASP. So mm -hmm. uh, these are inflammatory proteins and proteins that uh, promote abnormal growth and that damage the local tissues and so forth. Well relatively recently it's been discovered there's another bad thing that the SASP does and that is that it actually causes other non-senescent cells to become senescent so you get one cell gets damaged by say uh, DNA damage or by replicating itself too often and it undergoes senescence it starts producing this SASP and then the SASP goes out and it will actually cause another neighboring cell or even cells far away in the body, like going from the gut up until muscles in the arms to become senescent as a result of the SAS factors. This can be like a domino effect, that's really bad. Um, and so there's a project run by Sen's Research Foundation uh, by Dr. Desale, who asked the question, well, are these so-called secondary senescent cells, these cells that are triggered into senescence by different mechanisms through the SASP, are they going to be different? Are they going to respond to senolytic drugs differently? So uh, again, taking a step back, uh, the, the effective way to deal with senescent cells is to just destroy them. And there are mm -hmm. experimental drugs called senolytics that will destroy senescent cells. And that, of course, eliminates the SAS because there's no senescent cell left to produce the SAS factors anymore. Well, one of the things that was discovered over time was that individual senescent cells will vary in terms of how effective existing cellular drugs are based on what kind of cell was it originally before it became senescent and based on what was the stimulus that drove it into senescence. So uh, Dr. Zassal asked the question, well, okay, this is a whole new 
mechanism whereby a kind of cell can go senescent through this secondary senescence process, isn't it likely that they are going to be differentially vulnerable or not to different standalone drugs? And so when he actually tested it, it turned out that you know, out of four of the most commonly used senescent drugs, three of them didn't work at all, basically, against, against these secondary senescent cells. So that was a real problem, right? We are throwing cellular drugs into the body to eliminate senescent cells, and it is completely bypassing a whole category of senescent cells. Um, and so we started looking at, well, what is different about the metabolism of these cells? And one of the things that he actually discovered, not just about secondary senescent cells, but even about primary senescent cells, that was partially understood before, but not really understood in as much detail, is that they have abnormal metabolism around iron, uh, the most prominent and obvious feature of which is that they hoard the stuff. So they actually have very, very high levels of iron inside of themselves. And they also are metabolizing that iron in a very abnormal way. And so he tested a number of different ways to take advantage of that abnormal iron metabolism and trigger the cells to self-destruct. And it turned out that not only was strategies based on abnormal iron metabolism effective at destroying the secondary senescent cells, it was also effective against primary senescent cells. So we not only discovered for the first time that secondary senescent cells were not being affected by major classes of senolytic drugs that are out there now, he discovered an entirely new senolytic strategy that would destroy both classes of senescent cells. So it, it, it really has a lot of potential, and we are running that to ground right now. So yeah, thank you for asking the question, because that's another really exciting thing that we're working on. Is there a difference based on gender for the iron metabolism? Uh, I imagine there's like le there's more iron in men than women, so then is that result in more senolytic cells of the type that you're talking about um, being higher? So that, that's on, a good yeah. question. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a very good question. Um, so the real answer is we don't know because it hasn't been tested. Mm. Um, you would expect that there probably is not a difference in terms of how that metabolism works because mm. this is not sort of your cells acquire iron at random because you have iron in you and that's driving the process. No, it is rather that once a cell has already gone senescent, it is hoarding iron into itself. So you would expect that that thing would happen in a man or in a woman equally. However, you're absolutely right that men have more iron in their bodies, especially before they go, if, before women undergo menopause. Um, and so it might be that because there is more iron around, there is a faster process once that gets going in men. Um, but I don't, know the answer to that because the experiment really hasn't actually mm. been done but it's a good question so again my, my expectation is that there wouldn't be an effect or if there were it would be small but you don't know until you do the experiment yeah and then it does sound like there's a lot of things going on now like uh yeah it seems like a very exciting time at even yeah. though you know the research you know with the interest rates and stuff it's being affected uh, it does sound like you know you're you're developing different pathways as new metabolisms. I've been seeing I've been hearing a lot of metabolism. Like I, I kind of like I talk to people in different fields, and more and more and more I'm hearing that there's something with metabolism, like how we how that 
functions as it relates to different illnesses and whatnot. It seems to be the core of a lot of stuff going on. So it's kind of interesting to see this theme play out in longevity. Psychedelics, apparently, there's like, a, I just recently had a gentleman on named Parker, whose episode will go up sometime soon, who uh, was talking about how, like, the way that psychedelics affect the brain and do, do everything that it does in terms of, like, for health, mental health benefits, goes down to, like, the metabolism of it. And so it's kind of interesting to think that there that might be something that people delving into can learn more about. Because I think there's, I always look when I'm looking at 100% of something, what are like the 20% of things I could like really dive and know very intently to understand like the 80% of things that are, I'm probably going to read about for the next like five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. It seems like metabolism might be one of those things for longevity. Uh, other than, you know, analytics and stuff like that. But uh, metabolism seems like something that's on the rise. So it, it's funny you should say that because like, the whole essence of the SENS approach is exactly to bypass metabolism and attack the damage directly, right? So mm-hmm. um, conventional approaches like calorie restriction or the drug rapamycin or uh, the SGLT2 inhibitors, all those things are designed to stimulate the body to change its metabolism so that it either inflicts less damage to itself or does a better job of sort of doing the immediate repairs that it can do so that the damage doesn't become sort of fixed and permanent into lesions that the body really can't repair, right? So the sense approach is actually to bypass metabolism because of the limitations of what metabolism can and can't do. And because of the fact that metabolism is what actually keeps us alive to actually attack the damage directly. So let, let me give you an example. So, um, if you have high blood pressure, for instance, uh, that inflicts a lot of damage on your arteries, which makes your arteries more predisposed to atherosclerosis, and it also damages your kidney so that you eventually develop kidney failure, and damages your heart so that you eventually develop congestive heart failure, and can also trigger a stroke, which you know can ravage your brain and lead you very badly disabled. So if you have high blood pressure, it's a good idea to lower your blood pressure. So that, and the drugs that do that work by changing your metabolism. But of course, you have to have a certain level of blood pre- pressure or you would not be able to get enough blood pressure into your brain to give you the oxygen and nutrients that you need. And so people are always like riding this knife edge with blood pressure drugs where you want to get your blood pressure as low as you can. But of course, the lower and lower you get it, the more danger you are of you know, fainting and hitting your head, for instance, because you don't get enough blood to your brain, or uh, the the problems with dipping at night, where you lie down and your blood pressure goes down, and it can get so low that you actually don't get enough perfusion into your brain. Um, and so there's always limitations to what you can do by interfering with metabolism, because metabolism is exactly what keeps you alive, right? Or you know, another example is something like your blood pressure, your, sorry, your blood sugar. So um, if your blood sugar is really high, you have diabetes and you will get, you know, damage to your retinas, which will eventually leave you blind or uh, damage to your kidneys, which will eventually lead you to kidney failure uh, or damage to your peripheral nerves so that you will get either your fingers will go numb or uh, you'll get shooting pains or uh, artificial heat in your fingers and so on. So you need to bring your blood pressure, your blood pressure, your blood sugar down at least into a normal range. But even in the normal range, blood sugar is still doing damage to all those same tissues. Well, 
if you bring your blood pressure sugar down um, even lower, you will eventually start having hypoglycemic crises. And you know, people who are, have type one diabetes who overshoot with their uh, insulin level, for instance, can have real serious crises on these. So um, there's just there's limits on what you can do by interfering with metabolism all across the board, and and also the body just doesn't have machinery to remove some of the more advanced kinds of aging damage no matter what you do with, with metabolism so mm. the sense approach is to, is to bypass metabolism entirely and say look no matter what we do a certain amount of this hard damage is going to accumulate uh we instead are going to directly target and directly remove that damage or if it's a functional unit that has been damaged irreplaceably we're going to replace it with a new one so a new cell, a new biomolecule, whatever it is that you've lost. Um, having said all that, it is absolutely like a golden age when metabolism-based drugs, like uh, all these new drugs for obesity, uh, the, the uh, GLP-1 inhibitors like semaglutide, um, these amazing new cardiovascular drugs we are getting out that are really going to reduce the severity of atherosclerosis, both by lowering uh, the level of uh, ApoB-containing lipoproteins, which are what drive atherosclerosis, and also by, uh, for the first time, successfully boosting your body's ability to, to draw uh, damaged cholesterol out of uh, your cells and arteries. So like the metabolism side is definitely making excellent progress as well. It's just that to really make progress against aging not just you know for five years or ten years but for hundreds of years you really have to tackle the aging damage directly and that's what we're doing at sense research foundation yeah it so let's assume that everything works out we're able to tackle aging and now aging's guess going away or maybe we just double triple i don't know if there's an upper limit on these things but um what like from a philosophical standpoint what do you think we would do uh, and a, a listener brought this up to me. He's like, why don't you ask people about like the like what would happen to our economy and stuff? It's like, well, I don't know, probably would grow a lot. Uh, I think retire people wouldn't retire as much. I, I guess the French would probably riot more. But what <laughs> what, what would uh because you gotta erase the retirement age. But yeah, yeah. what do you what what would you see the the future? Do you think it'd be like a Star Trek post scarcity type society? Um, but in in reality, what what do you think the future would look like? You know, you know, twenty years from now, when you can live and be you know twenty thirty year, years old, like physically, but you're you know you're going to be good for a very long time. I mean, the most important thing about what the future would be like is just that we would have much fewer people aging and dying and being sick, and that makes me really happy. That's something I'm mm -hmm. you know very excited to think about. But you're right. I mean, it's bound to have all kinds of other social consequences. So, for sure, we will not be able to have people. You know, retiring at 62 and uh, drawing on public pensions for 500 years or whatever it's going to be. So people would, you know, have to find new ways of living their careers. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, the miracle of compound interest is such that if you're putting away even very small amounts of money, you know, over the course of a couple hundred years of lifespan where you don't have huge medical costs because you're not aging and you are able to work when you want to work, you know, you can fund a retirement if that's what you want to do that can last decades or hundreds of years, right? Um, we would certainly have to find ways of, you know, re-engineering things like seniority, 
and all kinds of different ways about the way that society runs. I think we're just going to have to work those things out as they come around. Mm -hmm. But the, the main thing is that, you know, it, it's, I'm going to change society fundamentally because so much of our society is engineered around the idea that, well, people are going to become sick and incapable of handling themselves and are going to need constant social support and medical support and then eventually die. And so, you know, we need to have all these medical services and we need to have retirement and we need to have, you know, and we can just sort of uh, deal with, uh, you know, sort of change our society by expecting people to die. And that's just not going to be a feasible approach anymore. Um, those can be good or bad changes. I can only say that no matter how good or bad they are going to be, they cannot possibly be as bad as having 100,000 people die of aging every single day and many times more that number living in abject misery because of Alzheimer's disease and heart disease and cancer and because their mother or their brother or their uncle has Alzheimer's disease or cancer or heart disease or whatever it's going to be. Like, society is going to have to change. It's just whatever those changes are going to be are still going to leave us in better shape for the simple reason that aging is just so awful and so pervasive. What would be the, like Michael 2.0? So age is taken care of, so you're no longer a communicator of longevity research and things going on. What would you do in that, that world where longevity has been achieved? That's a really good question for which I don't have a really great answer. Mm. So uh, the, the, the first thing is that, like, so it is not as if at some point in the near future, we are going to have this done and dusted, right? Yeah. So there is this concept of longevity escape velocity introduced by Dr. DeGray, where you don't sort of cure aging in some definitive point where you know, you, you take a pill today and aging is just done and dusted, right? What instead happens is we develop a first generation of longevity therapies where we buy, we can remove and repair enough of the cellular molecular damage that accumulates in aging tissues to grant a person, say, 20 or 30 years of additional life. Um, but then additional damage is going to accumulate. Mm -hmm. That first generation of therapies either can't repair or can't repair enough of. And so you're going to need a second generation of therapies to uh, remove more of that damage. And then the same thing is going to happen again and again. And at some point, we are going to have this completely under control, but it's going to take probably a fairly long time of people living longer and longer and longer with newer and newer therapies going on. So um, even though I expect to have us all on a path towards indefinite lifespan at some point in the, you know, foreseeable future uh i don't necessarily expect that we're going to have you know no need for scientists to work on developing longevity therapies for a really long time or necessarily for someone like myself to help communicate and develop that science um on the other hand clearly there's going to be a lot less need of science communicators once everyone accepts the idea mm -hmm. that yes we can actually intervene in aging because we've actually done it right um, so, you know, maybe I have to find another career. Um, I have interest in sort of the history and origins of religion. Maybe I'd pursue those. Uh, I have interest in what else might I pursue? It's a good problem um, to have. 
yeah, I mean, certainly I would rather have this problem than aging as a problem for mm -hmm. sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I might conceivably have to find another occupation. And sort of the, the most obvious thing to point at is my interest in the history and origin of religion. But uh, yeah, it could be something else. I don't know. Um, and of course, as we were just saying, you know, a lot of things about the way society is organized would have to change at that point. So there could very well be a career that I can't even imagine right now that would open mm -hmm. up for me at that point. I mean, of course, we are simultaneously having artificial intelligence that is on the rise is likely to change things quite a bit. Uh, we're going to have, you know, a change in the way our energy is produced. Um, we're going to have changes in the way uh, services are delivered and so forth. So, you know, by the time this happens, all kinds of things about the economy will have changed and about how people have careers will have changed. And so, even if I had a concrete plan laid out now, it might completely become uh, meaningless by the time we have Asian conquered. Mm -hmm. uh, related to your interest in understanding the origin of religion, there's a book called the Immortality Key that I think you would enjoy. Mm. I recommend it to you. And that leads to my question, which is what books do you recommend to us? Is there an ending Asian 2.0 that you want to write? Uh, that's a, I keep asking you two questions. First, book recommendations. <laughs> you can write another book. <laughs> my bad. Yeah, no, it's perfectly fine. So, uh, book recommendations. So, uh, one really good book. So, anyone who is interested in what they can do right now to maximize their chances. So, actually, another step back. So, the first book I could recommend uh, is actually Ending Aging, which you've already mentioned. So, this is a book that I wrote with Dr. DeGray, which sort of lays out the, the sense strategy, how broadly speaking we want to tackle aging. And then some of the specifics in terms of like, okay, these are the different forms of cellular molecular damage that accumulate aging tissues. And here are strategies whereby we could remove them. And here is the progress we have made so far in tackling that. So uh, that actually, I'll skip ahead to your second question to say like, you know, it's been 15 years or so now since we wrote that book and a lot has changed, right? We, we've already talked about some of the changes. Um, <clears throat> in terms of new research that has happened, in terms of there being a lot of longevity therapeutics startups that didn't exist back then, in terms of Sun's Research Foundation having made a lot of progress. So all of that stuff, uh, you know, we, as we mentioned earlier on, like we now have lecanemab and dimatumab, uh, which are these two new therapies that directly remove beta amyloid from the brain, didn't exist, right? Uh, back when we wrote the book. So there's just a lot to write up uh, and yeah, it would be excellent to write an ending aging 2.0 that uh, really updated all that stuff. Um, in terms of books that are available now that I recommend to people, in addition to ending aging, uh, there's a very good book by a guy named Peter Tia called Outlive, uh, which is the best book out there in terms of what you can do right now to increase your odds of being around when really well proven successful longevity therapeutics are actually available. It gets into the broad strategy again of like, what do you actually need to do to live longer and be healthier? Uh, and what, and then to a limited extent, what are the tools and tactics on how you would actually go about doing that? Um, the book would have had to have been a lot longer for him to get into that in detail. So it's not as detailed as I would personally have liked, but it's a really valuable book to help you think about how to make decisions in that space. So um, it's an excellent book. Um, another one that is 
on the subject we were just talking about a moment ago, a uh, really interesting book called uh, Jesus Apocalyptic Prophet. I think it's called Jesus Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium by a guy named Bart Ehrman. And it's just his thesis on uh, who Jesus actually was and what his uh, origin thinking were from a historian's perspective as opposed to from a religion perspective. Uh, really interesting book. Um, and then there's a, a really interesting book on sleep uh, and on chronobiology. And his name is Russell. Oh, gosh, I can't remember his last name. The book is called Lifetime, and it's two words, mm -hmm. lifetime, but it's, of course, intended as a pun because it's both about sort of your lifetime, but also about the circadian biology, the biology that governs sort of sleeping and waking and how your body sort of organizes itself through the day and through the seasons. Really interesting in terms of like the whole biology of that. So yeah, really interesting book to read. Sweet. I'm going to check them all out. Uh, I haven't heard of two thirds of them, which is fun because then I get to read new things. The, so the last I question can... given, uh, and I'll send you, uh, but anyways, the last question, which is going to be uh, one from the audience, which shared my interest as well. They're named derived absurdity 77. I doubt that's a real name. Uh, what is his timeline for Lev? So, you know, leaving it on uh, that, uh, what would what would be your guess? So, I am reluctant to make a guess. Um, mm. I am not super optimistic it's going to happen in the next 20 years, as some people are. Um, and it, the, the real answer to the question is just it depends on how much research is done in the area, and that is, like, dependent on what all of us do, both in terms of you know, data native organizations like Sens Research Foundation, and in terms of like pushing our politicians to make more investments in this area. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it just it depends on how fast the research goes, and how fast the research goes depends on what all of us are able to do. So that's the real answer to that question. I don't have a good guess. You know, clinical trials take as long as they take, research takes as long as it takes, and it just takes money to do the research. So mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. All I can say is, like, the actions we take now will ensure whether it goes faster or slower. Yeah. And then uh, to for people who want to be a part of the change and to be a part of the future of pushing this needle forward or the ball forward, depending on your metaphor, the, the Sense Research Foundation website, that's, like, the number one place, and there's, like, a donation thing that I'll have in the show notes. Is there anything else that you would encourage people to look into to, to support? Um, there's a group called A4LI that is uh, pushing mm -hmm. on the political side of this, the Alliance for Alliance for Longevity something. I think it's Association. No. I talked to the founder guy, but I don't remember the name of ah, Gosh, that's embarrassing. Uh, A4LI, anyway, uh, who are pushing on the political side to, uh, because really, like, the National Institutes of Health spends more money on biomedical research than any other organization on the planet by many orders of magnitude. Their budget last year was, I believe, $43 billion. Uh, and if we could just redirect, you know, even a modest chunk of that money into longevity research, uh, that would really change the game a lot. So uh, they certainly deserve people's support, for sure. 
Yeah, and it's it's Alliance for Longevity Initiatives. I would not have guessed that for initiative speed the eye, which is kind of obvious. It's like once you see it, it's like a Berenstein Bears or whatever. Yeah. But all right, uh, Michael, I want to thank you for coming on the show uh, and sharing your passion for this field. I hope everyone listened in. Got uh, whatever you got away with it, just DM me or or Michael. I imagine you would uh, enjoy the feedback as well. Um, but Michael, thank you so much for being here today. Super. Thanks, Will.